God is good all the time. God is good. Welcome, everybody. It's so good to be with you tonight, at least in this way. And welcome to everybody that joins us online and our CM campus. I was raised in the Southern Illinois incarnation of the Jesus Revolution. The community was formed in groups, guitars, and gatherings, far more than programs, property, and position. I have vivid memories of being a 10-year-old boy and in small groups surrounded by bell-bottomed, shoeless teenagers, all testifying as to how they had just given up marijuana on Tuesday. And I have equally clear memories of my parents, particularly my dad as a pastor, trying to navigate the, the desire to be a part and a catalyst in a movement of God and then trying to keep the people happy who actually paid his salary. Jesus' people went to church, but I, I don't know that anybody expected much of it. I don't know that anybody got much from it either. The political dynamics featured in the film Jesus' Revolution, and, and I would watch that if you hadn't, certainly hold true to, to my childhood recollections. Conversely, during my southern Illinois small-town teen years, it seemed like almost everybody went to church. But for many of them, it seemed to have no discernible impact on how they lived their lives from day to day. I remember being in high school thinking that so many people were just straight up hypocrites. In response, I became a hypocrite of a different sort, a Pharisee who reveled in my exaggerated sense of comparative righteousness. Forget that I was arrogant and uncaring and critical and callous and self-absorbed. I didn't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew. I prayed a sinner's prayer as a kid. I knew the Bible. Was I a real Christian? You bet, probably a saint. Later in my life, something happened unexpectedly. And then, though I didn't know it at the time, it really changed everything in my life from that point forward. And it happened during seminary, of all places. It was the second semester of my middler year. You kind of have freshman, middler, senior. You go to seminary for three years. I was more than halfway through the three-year grind, too far in to quit, uh, not quite far enough in to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think it'd be fair to say that my experience to that point would be disappointing. Just wasn't at all what I had expected. So the only thing there seemed to me to be left to do was just trudge through another year, give them what they wanted, and get my degree. And that's what I did, until, of course, I didn't. It seemed that many of my required classes seemed intent on the deconstruction of my Midwestern bootstrapping, Bible-based evangelical belief system. I often felt like a target of liberal, liberationist, progressive professors who considered me and those who believed like me, who believed what Christians have always believed to be the problem. What was their solution? Eradicating the problem. 
If you get systemically pounded from every conceivable direction for a couple of years, it can get to you. And I just remember it got to me. I recall walking by a small prayer chapel one day in between classes. I don't even remember the name of the building. I went inside. I got on my knees and I decided I would not get up until I figured out if the God they were purporting in this seminary was the same God to whom I surrendered my life as a child. And furthermore, were they talking about the Jesus who died on the cross for my sin or some sort of hijacked modern Jesus who was a political activist? I got to tell you, I never quite answered the question, but I did make a decision that changed everything for me. And here's what I decided. The faith that saved me was going to have to be the faith that kept me. The God of my childhood was going to be the God of my adulthood. The B-I-B-L-E was still going to be the book for me. And bad theology and a bit of persecution was not going to drive the joy, 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 joy out of my heart. It was a double down, a long time in the making. I was a Bible-believing, traditional, orthodox Christian. And I wasn't going to back down from it on one hand or get in a bad mood about it on the other. It's been 31 years since my graduation with honors from Candler School of Theology at Emory University. And here I stand. I have not changed, nor will I. You see, that old-time religion is good enough for me. Verse 1, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Three decades ago, I heard Rick Warren say that anything not repeated every 30 days in the life of a church is forgotten. I am a firm believer in ecclesiastical redundancy. You have to keep important things in front of people or they will become lost from their collective memory. As you guys know, we're doing an evangelism initiative called 500. We actually have 575 people who've agreed to invite one new person to church every week for 60 weeks. Now, if I want to ensure that this, that this initiative will fail, all I have to do is recruit folks, consecrate them, give them things to hand out, and never talk about it again. 500 will fade like a bad Western. At the end of 60 weeks, I assure you, we'll have no more than 40 or 50 people still inviting folks, and they were probably inviting folks before. We're going to mention 500 a lot over the next year. You may get tired of hearing it, but you're not going to forget it. You see, some things must not just be fashioned and formed. They must be forged. A huge part of Paul's ministry was not just teaching people, but reminding them of what they already knew. In this case, the Philippians were told to rejoice even in their present troubles. May I say, especially in their present troubles. 
You know, I lead two congregations, a live one and a virtual one. About the half the people who engage with us in ministry at Christ Church are live. About half the people are online. I also have about that many people combined who look to me for spiritual leadership who have no connection with this church whatsoever. Through streaming, online platforms, social media, blog posts, I find myself able to minister, evangelize, encourage, equip, uplift people who live all over the world, not just within driving distance of our campuses. And I can do this seven days a week, not just Sundays and Wednesday evenings. A big part of my ministry is just reminding people, reminding people that God has them, reminding people to smile, to be kind to one another, to stand firm, to watch their priorities, to reject stress, to hang on to what is good and best about them. And above all things, to treasure this wonderful gift of the Christian faith. I want to give reminders that help people stay on task, to help people stay focused, to remove distractions, and to encourage folks. I think people today need encouraged. I want to be a part of that. And I think if I had to tell you what my focus is with that online non-Christ church part of my ministry, I want to help remind Christians to be Christian on platforms where it's pretty rare. We always stand in need of being told what we know, but what we're so tempted to forget. Verse two and three, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say that you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Christianity began as a sect, S-E-C-T, of Judaism. As a movement spread west from Israel, more and more Gentiles, non-Jews, began to accept and receive the good news. By now, the Jewish religious establishment had largely rejected the movement, but there still were a whole lot of Jewish Christians who still practiced Judaism, but believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. We would call them today Messianic Jews. They were decreasingly finding quarter, and Christianity was increasingly become a Gentile movement. During this time of inevitable separation from Judaism and the establishment of Christianity as a religion in its own right, there were a lot of hot debates within the emerging church. And Paul was at the epicenter of these debates. Always Paul is in the middle of things. If, it's like anywhere you went, if there was something going on, Paul is going to be in the middle of it. Always. Some said that for male Gentiles, Jews, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Greeks, Romans, for male Gentiles to become Christians, they argued that they had to be circumcised. Paul argued fervently that there was no need for such a thing. 
though the Jerusalem council really went Paul's way on this matter, there were still very influential people who were unconvinced and they continued to push the agenda. Paul's had enough of it. You ever just had enough? Just ever had enough? Paul is not unduly patient. Paul calls these people dogs and mutilators. And you say, well, those seem different. Well, not as different as you think. I love dogs. But in the Bible, dogs are of the wild and feral varieties. They are generally viewed across scripture the same way we view buzzards. Furthermore, those insisting on removing the male foreskin of adults for religious reasons are called mutilators. It's a term that flies around our culture today. These are extremely strong words. They are the kind of words that get people radiating at high frequencies. And what you need to understand is they were intended to be. You don't start a riot everywhere you go by going with the flow. For Paul, circumcision in the Gentile Christian community is metaphorical now. It's a circumcision of the heart. As God does his surgical work in us, he removes those things that do not resemble the work and mind of Christ. Circumcision of the heart is not a process by which someone gets out their religious scalpel. It's something God does in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses four through six, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. I was so zealous, I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. It's with the pedigree, authority, we'd say today street credit, of one who has fully complied with the rigors of organized religion that Paul can say, this doesn't work. I did it. I was the best at it, and it doesn't work. From time to time, I engage in conversation with people who tell me they want to attend seminary. I think people think seminary is like church camp. I'm always a bit ambivalent, and and people are usually surprised that I'm not just excited about this. I've seen bad seminaries ruin many perfectly good Christians during my life, take three years out of their life, and charge them plenty to do it. I've had times I felt like we sent on fire for Jesus lay people, And three years later, they returned to us generally ineffective pastors. On the other hand, some people have wonderful seminary experiences. And they come out fully equipped and prepared to lead effectively. I just tell folks, if I was them, I wouldn't even consider a seminary that does not purport the historical Christian faith. And there's no way I'm going to recommend that you go there. No way. And then if you find some good schools, and they're out there, then you just need to pray about whether or not God would have you attend one. Now, I feel that I can offer this advice 
objectively, because I actually have a seminary education. I'm not telling these folks not to go to seminary because I didn't go to seminary and them not going to seminary makes me feel better about myself. It's not like that at all. Paul's saying that he is uniquely qualified to say that getting to God through man-made religion is useless because he has more religious credentials than all of them put together. The Philippian church has been freed from the stifling constraints of Judaism. And Paul's making sure they didn't replace one strangling religion with another. Verse seven, nothing is, was more important to me than keeping the law. But because of Jesus, there is now a better way. Let me ask just a heart question. If, if there was a better way, would you be interested? A lot of times we say, well, of course people would be interested. Eh, I don't know. I've just seen a whole lot of people more comfortable, may I use the axiom with the devil they know, than with the unknown. I'm not at all sure that just because there's a better way and people know there's a better way, that that means they will pursue that better way. Some years back, I was talking to someone in my office about faith. And I invited them to ask Jesus into their life and become a Christian. And they said no. What they told me was that their life was a mess and that they were going to spend some time kind of cleaning up their act. And once they got that done, they would ask Jesus in and become a Christian. And of course, I told them, you got this all backward. If we were capable of cleaning up our acts on our own, Jesus would have never had to come. The old covenant would have worked just fine. Honestly, you would think that person would go, of course, they didn't do that at all. They rejected the offer to receive Christ. You, you want to know why? Because they couldn't give up the idea of religion long enough to embrace Christianity. They couldn't give up their idea of the old covenant where we have to work our way to God or be good enough for God before God will accept us to embrace the new covenant. They had a better deal right in front of them, but they didn't receive it. You see, sometimes giving up the old, the old is hard, even if we know the new is, is better. Just because people know there's something better doesn't at all mean they will pursue it. Verse 9, I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to keep the law to save me. I trust Jesus to save me. We have to ask ourselves, if the successful pursuit of religion doesn't save us, then what does? And the answer is faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.1 1 offers a definition of faith. It's a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. God offers us an eternal relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, Shane, you certainly say that a lot. Exactly. Now we're getting on the same page. By believing that Jesus lived a life we could not live, that he willingly died for our sin, that we might have life, we move from a dead religion to a living relationship. We move from a prize to be earned to a gift to be received. 
verses 10 and 11. Because of this, I know Jesus and know the power he came to bring us. I also know suffering and I have shared in his death with the hopes of resurrection. I love that Paul ends this, not, not on a little more melancholy note, which he does, but I love that he ends it with, in hopes of resurrection. This is a reminder that we can't allow ourselves to forget the really good stuff that we know. This life isn't all there is. It just isn't. This earthly existence isn't all there is. It just isn't. There's more. When you look ahead in your life, it's, it's not just drama, decay, decline, and death ahead for you. There's resurrection ahead. There's this intrinsic optimism, hardwired in Christianity. And conversely, there's this intrinsic pessimism hardwired into looking at things from a human point of view. I mean, if the humanist is right, if the agnostic is, is right, you, we're, we're born, we, we live, we enjoy a lot of life that we can, we kind of hit a peak, then we start to decline, and things get worse and worse and worse, and right about the time we, don't, we can't stand it anymore, we die. Game over, game, set, match. Christians... Man, we couldn't be further from there. This world is not our home. This life we live is not all there is. And God has something better, wonderful, waiting for us. It's the hope of resurrection. Christians don't live like unbelievers, but Christians also don't die like unbelievers. We do not die believing the Grave and death swallow us. We die believing in resurrection. In fact, that's what I love about Christian funerals. People kind of look at funerals as sort of these kind of bland little things that we all should do, man. I look at funerals as acts of holy defiance. Somebody dies, and as bad as it all is, we stand there together and we say, death, you do not get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. Life gets the last word. Life eternal gets the last word. You don't get the last word, death. I like it all day long. It lines up with my personality wonderfully. So let's see what we've learned. First of all, repeat important things. The important things in your life, redundancy is your friend. When I used to play a lot of softball, if I ever got in a slump, it was always because I was forgetting the fundamentals in some essential way. Repeat important things. Keep them in front of you. Number two, you can't be good enough for God. That's why religion fails. You can't be good enough for God. Won't happen. Number three, religion always fails. We are human beings. We are part of a fallen world. We have glitches in our operating system. We have a missing spoke in our flywheel. Religion is always going to fail. Number four, Christ is the only way. He's the way, the truth, the life. He is the only way to God. You say, that sounds pretty exclusive. Exactly. He is the only way. Number five, faith is the key. 
You want to unlock the door to every great thing? Faith. Take the leap of faith. Some of you are trying to convince yourselves that, that all your blanks are going to be filled in and all of the logical sequences you have in your mind. You say, as soon as I get everything put together, all the pieces put together, then I'll ask Jesus into my heart. Not going to happen. God will never reveal himself to us in ways that negate the need for faith. At some point, you're going to have to take a leap of faith and believe that you will land on something solid. Face the key. Number six, Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. It is a relationship with God made possible through Jesus. And number seven, power is released through surrender in Christ. A lot of times we think, if I'm going to live a powerful Christian life, I need to try harder and harder and harder. It's the exact opposite. We need to surrender more and more and more that Christ's power may be made known and may surge through us. I believe the biggest thing in my life that prohibits the power of God is when I get in the way of that power by trying to do things in my own strength. We must decrease that God may increase in our lives and in our ministries. The more we release of ourselves to God, the more of God's power is released in us. When this Greek word that we translated no is used in the Bible, it always means to personally know. Not to know about. You may be a person that is all into celebrities. I, I watched the news uh, last week, and, and, and it was a day that the stock market did really, really well, and I was curious to know why. So I turned on the evening news. Guess what they opened with? Something about two people who used to be royalty in another country and aren't really that in quite the same way anymore. And they were in New York and they may or may not have had a harrowing 10-minute ride in a car. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. But that was lead. Big stuff. Why? People all into celebrities. They're all into this kind of thing. Look at sports figures. People are just all into that. And it's really a big deal to them. But here's the thing. You don't know those people. And they don't know you. And I hate to tell you this. They probably don't want to know you or me. You don't know them. You know about them. You may say, well, I know everything about them. Okay, fine. You may know everything about God, but it doesn't mean you know God. You may know everything about Jesus, but it doesn't mean you know Jesus. And the big difference here is that those celebrities probably don't want to know you. And if you don't believe me, just knock on their door and ask if they'd like to talk a few hours. I guarantee you, Jesus wants to know you. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to know you. He wants to know me. Many of us know about Christ and we may know something about the historical Jesus or know something of the cultural Jesus in the He Gets Us campaign. But a lot of people don't personally know that Jesus is presented to us in the Bible. The, the Christ who desires to not only be known, but to know us. I want to suggest you can personally know Christ. You can 
personally receive the power that he comes to bring. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We are invited into a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A lot of people would be absolutely thrilled if they got to even say hello to their favorite celebrity or their favorite athlete. My goodness, if they got to actually shake their hand. I mean, this, this might be the highlight of their whole life. If that celebrity actually spoke to them, it might be something they tell their grandchildren one day. What does it mean that the son of the living God wants to be in relationship with us? I love the old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. He wants to be our friend some years ago, one of my all-time favorite stories, my dad and I were in Cades Cove. And Cades Cove is, is an 11-mile loop in the Great Smoky Mountains. And cars go around. It's usually bumper to bumper. It takes forever to get through it. But a couple of days a week, they block it off. Cars can't go in. They let people walk or ride or whatever they do. And dad and I decided we were going to walk the cove. And everybody was walking the same direction. Everybody was going the same direction. And my dad had a shirt on, and it was orange. And on the front, it had a big smiley face. And it said, I am a friend of God. And I, I've always kind of liked that shirt because, I don't know, it's kind of wonderfully presumptuous. And, and I just like it in so many ways. And so dad had this shirt on. So we're about a mile in, right? And I look, dad has his arms out of the sleeves. I thought, surely he's not taking his shirt off and he just flipped his shirt around so the back that was blank was now in front and the smiley face that said I am a friend of God was now on back and so we walked another mile and I finally couldn't take it anymore I said dad do you know that you turned your shirt around backward he said yep he said nobody was coming toward us lots of people were coming up from behind us and I just wanted to let them know I just wanted to let him know that I am a friend of God. You know, I define religion as blind adherence to a preconceived set of notions. Religion is something you can know, but it will never know you. Religion's something you can befriend, but it will never be your friend. It may be your taskmaster, but it'll never be your friend. Some of you have tried religion in the past and you've mistaken it for Christianity. And you said, this doesn't work. I already told you religion doesn't work. Maybe like Paul, you, you were even really, really good at religion. So you were more surprised than anybody that it didn't work. But I want you to hear me. Religion won't save you because it can't. Can't. We do not need better religion. We need a relationship with God. The last thing I would ever do is suggest that you retread a tire that was defective in the first place. This, my friends, in the new covenant is a new tire sale. I'm inviting you to an eternity-altering relationship with God through the person 
of Jesus Christ. And it's a relationship that's entered by faith. This relationship, like that single moment in that chapel when I was in seminary, has changed everything for me. Everything for me. And I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe this could be your moment as well. Maybe this is the moment that you did what I did in that little chapel. You just drove your flag in the ground and said, here I stand. I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me. Open up your heart to what God could do. If you've never asked Jesus into your life before, let this be that. Almighty God, thank you for what Christ has done. Forgive me for trying to earn my salvation. My own attempts to get right with you are worthless. I trust Christ to save me in this moment. And by faith, I am made right with you. May I know Christ and may his life be lived through me in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I doubt I said one thing tonight that you didn't already know. And I doubt that Paul wrote one thing to the Philippians in this passage that they didn't already know. Me and Paul, we just came here to remind you.